Well, good morning. Good to see you this morning. Open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 8, as we continue in our series called Anchored. We're talking about biblical faith, our hope in Christ. And uh, today I want to spend some time in Hebrews chapter 8. We're going to talk about Christ as the perfect covenant. And uh, last week we talked about uh, Melchizedek as the high priest of Uh, that has went before Christ and now we get to chapter 8 and uh, we see that Christ is the supreme, the superior high priest. He's the superior covenant. And so we want to unpack that a little bit this morning and get some handles on what that means. So if you have your Bibles there or your phone, however you have the Word of God, follow along. We're going to begin at uh, verse number 1 of Hebrews chapter 8. This is the Word of the Lord. Now, The point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Verse 4, now if we were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. And now the writer is reverting back, pulling back to uh, the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel And with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is God's word. And of course, the book of Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians about 30 years after the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And they're beginning to sort of wobble a little bit in their faith. They're under some persecution. They're reverting back to the old things of the Jewish faith and the law. And to these Jewish Christians, the writer of Hebrews writes and talks about, we have this new promise in Christ, this superior covenant in Christ. And so there's a number of ways that Christ is superior, and we're going to look at those here this morning over these next few minutes. The first way I want you to notice that Christ is superior is he's superior in his proximity, in his proximity. 
You see what it said there, we read this, that one who is seated, in verse one, at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Christ is right there sitting next to the Father. When he completed his work as our high priest, he sat down. And he sat down next to the Father. Now, I think many of you will know that the high priests in the Old Testament, uh, if they wanted to enter into the presence of God, they could only do that on one day a year. The Jewish people still celebrate this. In fact, they celebrated it this year back, I think it was around September 23rd, 24th, and it is called Yom Kippur. You've probably heard of that, the Day of Atonement. And the idea is that uh, the high priest would go and atone or cover for the sins of the people by way of sacrifice, and in so doing, uh, bringing forth reconciliation between man and God. And this is complicated and detailed, and if you've read about this, you'll know something about it. But on that Day of Atonement, the high priest would remove his outer garments, and he would put upon himself beautiful uh, white linen uh, to represent cleanliness and that he was clean. And then he would take a bull calf and he would offer the bull calf as a sin offering first for the priests and for himself. And then he would go into the Holy of Holies, in behind the curtain. He would take a censer of live coals uh, from the altar of incense back in behind there. And he would sprinkle that uh, blood of that calf on the mercy seat and on the floor in front of the uh, Ark of the Covenant there. And then he would take two live goats. And these would be goats that uh, the people had brought. And they would cast lots over the two live goats. And he would take one of those and he would kill that goat. And he would take that blood from the one goat and take it and offer it as an offering of the sin for the nation and take the blood back in behind the veil and uh, sprinkle it as he had done before with the calf's blood. And then that second goat he would take and he would confess the sins of the nation or lay the sins of the nation on the second goat. And that goat would be sent out into the Negev, out into the desert. And so be uh, ostracized and isolated and that goat would become known as what kind of goat? The scapegoat, that's where the term comes from, the scapegoat. Uh, and I've talked to Jewish people in Israel many times about this whole uh, day of atonement and sometimes they would uh, say that once in a while the goat would come back in to town, you know, and that would, you know, kind of be very upsetting, obviously, because it was to go out and take the sins and be ostracized. And uh, so very, very complicated, one day a year, one day a year. In fact, that high priest would wear a, a rope affair around his waist because if he was to die, to have a heart attack in there in the Holy of Holies, no one else could go into that proximity with the presence of God. They'd have to pull him out. Couldn't go in there with him. Wow. We don't have that kind of proximity if we're working through a high priest. But our high priest... He doesn't go see God once a year. He sat down at the right hand of God in the heavens. He, he's right there with God. That's why Paul says to uh, Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, 5, for there is one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. He's the only one. He's the only one that can do it. 
When, uh, when I was pastoring, there was a lady in our church, uh, she's one of our seniors, a lovely lady that loved the Lord, her name was Norma. And uh, Norma uh, had been following the Lord for decades and decades, but she had lived uh, her early years far from God. Even though she grew up in, uh, around uh, Christians in a Christian environment, Christian home, she spent her time on the backside of the desert and finally, as a, I think just a young, newly married woman, she gave her life fully to Christ and followed Christ. I love, Norma was so lovable. She's a wonderful congregant. And I went to see Norma three weeks ago in the retirement home in which she lives, 93 years old. And uh, crazy sense of humor. I just loved her sense of humor. That's probably why we got along so well. But she never took her sin for granted. And the fact that she was a sinner saved by grace and that she enjoyed this new relationship with the Lord. On uh, Wednesday afternoon, I got a phone call this week. It was her son calling to tell me that that morning she'd had a heart attack and she'd went to meet Jesus face to face. So this coming Friday, I will be doing the service for Norma. She knew that Jesus was her mediator, that Jesus was there with the Lord, with God himself. Let me just tell you this. No other religious figure, none, not Buddha, Confucius, Muhammad, uh, Joseph Smith, none of them can offer you this. None of them. They don't even claim to offer this. None but Jesus. He's superior in his proximity to God. The second thing I want you to notice is he's superior in his substance. He is reality, not a representation. We read that, right? They serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly thing. This is the earthly high priest. This is the Melchizedek. The, those high priests, they're not the real thing. They're sort of understudies. They're standing in. They served as this uh, copy, if you will. But Jesus is the real thing. Jesus is the real thing. In Hebrews 9, verse 24, it says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands. In other words, not into that holy of holies in the temple that hands had constructed. But Hebrews 9, 24 says, But into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Jesus goes back to God and said, My work on earth is done. You know, there's... A lot of substitutes in our world. Have you noticed that? We live in a world of unreal reality. Has anybody noticed that? Man, you can be fooled by all kinds of things in this world. Uh, I was watching, I don't know, it was CNN or something recently, and the Beatles have a new song out. Did you know that? I'm watching and thing, and here all of a sudden Paul McCartney's on there talking away, you know, we've got a new song out. You know, uh, John's dead, but we've got a brand new song out. It's done by artificial intelligence. We made the last part of the song with, uh, and you'll see John singing, but John's dead. Now, yeah, you go, no, I know John's dead. So now you can watch the last Beatles song where they've extracted John's voice and with artificial intelligence, they've taken the pattern of his voice and finished the song. So it's John singing, but John's dead. You don't even realize it's not real if they didn't tell you. That's the world we live in. It's an unreal 
reality. But Christ is the real deal, amen? He's the real deal. He's the only thing we have to offer you. You know, churches, we can offer all kinds of things, and those are good things. We can offer counseling and help and food and all of those things, and we should. But ultimately, the only thing that we have to offer you that will last and will fix your reality is Jesus himself because he's the real deal. He's the real deal. The third thing I want you to notice is that he's superior in his entirety. Look down there, if you will, verses six through nine. We see that he's superior in his entirety. He supersedes the reality of the law. The law, the old covenant, keep the law, was unattainable. 613 rules. You know, if your kids ever say to you, there's a lot of rules in this house, say, be glad you're not Jewish. 613 rules. Uh, approximately uh, 365 in the negative, the things you shouldn't do, and the rest are in the positive, the things you should do. The problem with that, we read in the book of James, chapter 2, verse 10, you know, can we keep the law? Yeah. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one, James tells us, fails. You know, and it's not a question of, you know, you know, I'm a, I'm a sinner, but I'm glad I'm not as bad as that other guy at church, right? You know, it, 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 it's a good thing that we're not as bad as we could be, but that's not the standard. Uh, a few years ago, maybe 10 years ago, I think now, a guy uh, wrote a book. His name was A.J. Jacobs. He was a secular Jew, and he wrote a book, and the book was called The Year of Living Biblically. Anybody remember that? Anybody read that book by any chance, The Year of Living Biblically? So he lived for one year and he took all of the Old Testament laws and he tried to live according to those laws. Now, the problem is the book has a, a false title because he wasn't year, living biblically, he was living Old Testamentally. Because the Bible is made up of two parts. Now, he's a secular Jew, he's, he's not interested in the New Testament. But, but he, he tried to keep the laws and he wrote and he, and he became quite, you know, he got his 15 minutes of fame and he was on all the, you know, the news shows and, you know, the Good Morning America and all that stuff. And, well, this will shock you. Guess what he found out? It's impossible to do. No kidding. He said, you can't do it. You just can't keep, you can't keep it all sorted out. No kidding. Right? The goodness in the new covenant of Christ is not only can you be found righteous, but you don't have to try and figure out all those Old Testament laws. John 8, 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you what? Free. John 8, 36, so if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Galatians 5, 1, for Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to that yoke of slavery. Acts 3, 39, and by him, everyone who believe is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. He's superior in his entirety. Now, let me give you a footnote before we move on. Does that mean I can do whatever I want? No. 
No, it doesn't. In fact, if you take some time today, read the latter part of Romans chapter five and the first part of Romans chapter six. It doesn't mean that you can live any way you want. It means that this freedom allows you to live the way that you were created to live, which is in relationship with God. Anybody here ever go to a zoo or, uh, I live in Cambridge, so we have this lion safari park kind of thing near us. And you know, a lot of zoos and places like that are on hard times because people find them oppressive to the animals and not that great. And you go and you say, well, that's a nice elephant, but man, if he, if he was just out you know, running on the Serengeti, and the reason why you feel like that is because then they'd be free, the, the elephant's actually free to live the way he was created to live, which is to roam around. And that's the freedom we find in Christ. Freedom from all these laws and rules and everything. We're free to live and abide in Christ. Number four, he is superior by way of his transformative work. Look at the beginning of verse 10 there. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. This is I'll make with my people, God's people. We are now God's people by way of the new covenant if you're a follower of Jesus. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. Interesting. He's superior by way of his transformative work. You know, if you take your phone out, don't do it now. If you take your phone out and you Google self-help, you will get about three billion responses. Now, might I suggest that you know, if you're Googling self-help, that probably means that self-help doesn't actually work. Everything in life that we think can improve us or fix us, you know, whether it's self-help, um, you, know, you know, some people get into meditation, some people get into yoga, philosophy, you know, um, essential oils, you know, I don't know if those are still big. I lived without essential oils for like 60 years. Maybe they're not that essential, I don't know. You know, I, I just don't know. Please don't come up to me if you sell essential oils. But the reality is folks, only the creator can re-engineer the created. And the beauty of what he does is it's from the inside out, this transformative work. Jesus said in that upper room, Pastor Neil talked about it, during that upper room time when they had that final meal together, Christ said, you know, abide in me. And to abide in Jesus means you fill your mind with his work. You surrender your will to his pleasure and purpose. You spend time interacting with him in a, in a, in a, in a walk of constant prayerfulness. And you follow him in full surrender. Jesus says, if you abide in me, I'm also abiding in you. I'm with you, I'm inside of you, I'm working on you and in you. It's an amazing promise that God makes. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in me, they are a new what? Creation, they're being recreated by the creator. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. I've died to self. I've been crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. He's in me. He's transforming me. He's changing me. Now, let me say this before we move on. 
I often meet Christians who tell me this, you know, when I first started following Jesus, man, stuff was good. I, was, I, I felt this affinity. I was kind of growing. I was excited. You know, things were happening. I was moving forward in my faith. And now, you know, I just kind of feel like, I don't know. I don't know. I'm kind of stalled. My heart's a bit kind of gotten, gotten a little cool, maybe cold. I just don't know. Let me, let me just suggest three things. Probably one of these three has happened to you. The first one is this. You may have become ignorant of the Spirit in your life. You're just not paying attention. You're just not clued in. When the Spirit's trying to work, you're just kind of straight-arming the Spirit of God. Even worse, you may have quenched the Spirit. Quenched the Spirit. Because the Spirit, you know, the Spirit will just back up and say, hold on, you know, like, hold on. I'm not going to force anything down your throat. You can quench the Spirit. You do that by rebellion. Even worse is you grieve the spirit, which is constant, unrepentant sin. And you just keep hammering away, and the spirit just backs up and says, yeah, when you're ready. Maybe you're in that place. Number five, why is Christ superior than the old covenant? He's superior in his relationship to us. His relationship to us. See what it said there in the second part of verse 10? And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Isn't that a great promise? Isn't that a great promise? Okay, come on, church. Yes! That's the promise. God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. We will be in this wonderful, intimate, ongoing, eternal relationship. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now let me say this, and I love what Rachel prayed there at the end of the worship time, you know, that you came to us, you came all the way. You know, Jesus gives himself to us and takes us to himself. It's that combination. And let me say this, church. You know, you have this superior relationship reality in Jesus. You know, you need to know God firsthand. You can't know God secondhand. You, you can't vicariously live your spiritual life through your parents or your wife or your husband or your grandparents or your friend. You have to enter into this where God is your God and you are his person firsthand because you need that because a time will come in your life where life, the wheels will come off and you're going to need to know God in his presence, in his power, in his peace in a very personal and real way. You, you. Uh, our youngest son, he's about 27 or 28 well, we were living in Atlanta at the time when he was born. And uh, he had a very difficult birth. And uh, it, it just a lot of things went wrong. And he came out. And, uh, and uh, when he was born, he had this breathing issue. And when he breathed, he sounded like a duck. So he would breathe, kind of like a Every time he breathed, he sounded like a duck. We didn't know what to do. Didn't know what to do. We named him Donald. I'm just kidding. We didn't name him Donald. We didn't name him Donald. But uh, he, 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 he was, you know, he just had, <laughs> I'm not sure where that came from. 
he uh he and it was like and, and he was really having a hard time and then i remember the neonatal uh, doctor came in and said yeah he's got a breathing issue he's something to do with his lungs we're you know we're going to bring in the lung guy and all this and uh and i said well how long you know he says well it could last for days could last for months he said he could have a lifetime breathing issue now if you've ever been in an american hospital every time the doctor looks at your kid you hear the cash register. And I'm like, this is going to, because he was in the neonatal unit. So by the time uh, he got out of there, we got a nice little bill for $12,000. So we prayed and we gave him back to the hospital. No, we didn't. <laughs> but you know what? I, I can remember driving home. My wife was still in the hospital. He was in the neonatal unit. I was making 32, I was a missionary. I was making $32,000 a year. I just got handed a $12,000 bill. Never mind the fact the doctor said, I don't know how long this condition's gonna last. We don't know what to do. We're, we're, you know, we're trying to figure it out. Could last for weeks, months. He could have a lifetime breathing issue. I'm driving home. I said, Lord, I have nowhere to turn but to you. Jesus, I need your help. I need your help. Uh, all of my kids love Jesus. Actually, he's growing now. He's an aerospace engineer. I didn't say that in the first service. I had several ladies come up to me. What happened to him? You know? And uh, so he's doing great. He's doing great, you know. If I was going to get a tattoo, I don't have any tattoos. All my kids have tattoos. I don't know what happened. We, you know... Their grandmother says, we have a guy at our church. He has tattoos as well, but he was in a motorcycle gang. I think that's a bit of, you know, you shouldn't have a tattoo. I, like, I, I'm probably too scared to get it. But if I'm going to get a tattoo, and I might get a tattoo, I'll tell you if I do, if I'm still here. You know what I'd get tattooed? I'd get the word loyal tattooed, where people could see it. But it's not because of the word loyal, because it, it, I, this is me. This is me in the relationship with Jesus. You know what loyal stands for? Leaning on you always, Lord. So we can lean on him. We have this new relationship. We can, we can go right into the presence and say, I gotta, Lord, the wheels are coming off today. I, I can't even put one feet and foot in front of myself. I'm going to lean on you. What else do I have to do? I have a friend good friend of mine, and if you ever need something done or something weird, I go to this friend of mine and I say, hey, and you know what he says, he's, he's got this line, oh, it's no problem, I know a guy. You ever have a friend like that? Has anybody got a friend like that? So you go to him, you say, you know, I need to get, uh, you know, I need to get an eight track tape player fixed. He goes, I know a guy. You know, you say, oh, I, you know, I got this thing on my back I need cut off. Yeah, I know a guy. He knows a guy can do everything, right? Know a guy. You know what the problem is? Too many Christians, they know a guy who knows the guy. You can't live your Christian life knowing somebody that knows the guy. You gotta know the guy. You have to know Jesus. And he gives you that opportunity to come to him and live your life in relationship to him. He will be your God and you can be his child. What an amazing promise, amen?
What a promise. Number six, he's superior in his approachability, which builds on this relationship, his approachability. Look down at verse 11 that we read. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. You can know him. You can approach him. Hey, it's me. It's your child. I'm here. The invitation is given. You know, come. Live in relationship with me. You know, a lot of people aren't approachable. Uh, when I was living in South Carolina, uh, George Bush was running for president the first time. And uh, one day I'm driving to work, and uh, I see this motorcade coming down the road, the motorcycles, police motorcycles, everything. It's George Bush's bus. He's campaigning. And he's going to this big sort of convention center banquet facility that was just like three streets, two or three streets over from where I lived. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to go see if I can see George Bush. He might be the next president. So I kind of go around the block and there's all, you know, you can't get close. There's police and, you know, all security and everything. Anyways, so he pulls in, sure enough, to this banquet hall and, he's, and they're going in. The bus is going around the back and I, you know, I'm sort of over, you know, looking down the block. And I'm thinking, aha, I know what I'm going to do. On the other side of that banquet hall, there is uh, a little set of woods that goes from about here to that wall over there. But on the other side of that, there was a bank. It was actually the bank that we did our banking at. And I said, I'm gonna go park in the bank parking lot, and then I'm gonna shoot through the woods, and I'll bet I'll get a chance to see him. Maybe I'll meet him, the next president. So I parked my car, and I looked through the woods. Now, if you've ever been to South Carolina, you know, or if you know South Carolina, they have a lot of spiders, big spiders, like, you know, big spiders, not quite that big. But, but if you, black widows, we'd see black widows in our garage. We'd see black widows in our garden all the time, okay? Brown recluse, which are a big, nasty brown spider. So I'm here, I'm looking through the woods, it's quite dense, and I look in there and I can see spider webs because they make these big webs between the pine trees, you know? And I'm thinking, ooh, I don't know if I want to go through there. But I'm thinking, but I'm going to meet the next president of the United States. My son had met Bill Clinton, so I thought I'd be able to say, well, I met George Bush. So I thought, no, I can do it. Here I go. So I start to go through and all of a sudden I can feel spider webs hitting my face and I'm getting kind of creeped out by it, you know. And so I start to move a little faster and then I can see the odd big spider and I'm going, ah, because I don't like this. And I start to pick up speed going through because I just want to get out the other side and I'm whacking and I'm like, ah. In the meantime, George Bush has come out of his bus with his secret service right there on the other side of the woods. And I come out of the woods, yeah! Now, I've never been shot, but that was probably fairly close. When you come out of the woods raving like a lunatic, and the Secret Service are there with a presidential candidate, they move really quickly. And so I'm like, ah, yeah, hi, 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 hi. And uh, he said, uh, I said, I just wanted to meet you. He was, you know, he was just as close as this, this young man is, right? He said, okay, come on over. So I went over and I talked to him for probably five minutes. They were doing all the introduction in the hall. They had the back door open, so they were waiting. So he stood and talked to me for like five minutes. He was a lot shorter than I thought. I always remembered that. You know, who am I to say? But I always remembered that. But you know, you can't approach important people, but you can approach Jesus very God, a very God. 
you can approach him. God, Jesus, man, you need to show up today and show off in my life. And he says, you know what? You can know me, the least to the greatest, whether you're rich or poor, young or old, smart or not so smart, whatever you are, you go. He says, no, come, you're, you're one of my children. It's an amazing promise. Number seven, we're just about done. He's superior in his mercy. He's superior in his mercy. Do you see what it says in verse 12 there? For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and he quotes back from Jeremiah, and I will remember their sins no more. Now just get a hold of that. I'll be merciful towards their iniquities, their sins, and I will remember their sins no more. God's act of forgiving is, finds its fullness in the fact that he's also forgetting. Do you realize that? I want you to think about this for just a second. God, who remembers everything, his very being is he transcends time so for him, something that happened a thousand years ago happened almost in this moment, if you can get your head around that philosophically. So he, who can never forget, chooses not to remember. It's an amazing reality. God chooses not to remember your sins. You see, it says, and I will remember their sins no more. That's why we read in Psalm 103.12, for as far as the east is from the west, I will remove their transgressions. I'll never meet again. It's an amazing reality that we have, that his mercy is superior to anything we can find on this earth. That is so glorious. Would you agree with me that there is nothing and no one who compares to Jesus? Amen. Not even close. Let me read the little poem at the bottom of your notes and we'll be done. A royal king invited me to know him as his friend, never losing sight of his full glory with him each day I spend. Down every road I sense his hand placed firmly over mine, and even when the road goes dark, I know that I am fine. All he asks is I press on. I give him all my best. He's done so much for me thus far. I know he'll do the rest. But when one day this journey ends, in death the world does frown. But I'll be victor, for he has said, for me he has a crown. Isn't that great? Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, thank you that Christ is so unimaginably glorious in every single regard. That he is our high priest who sits at your right hand. Our high priest that makes the law inconsequential and allows us to come and abide in him. He's our high priest who allows us to approach him in relationship 
and allow us to commune and call him friend. And Father, he is our high priest who extends mercy and chooses to forget all of the things which are manifold that we have done that are so displeasing to you. He's glorious in every regard. And Father God, we love you, and we love your son, and we want you to hear that today. And it's in his name and for his glory we pray, amen. And amen.